Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the Word of God. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for your word that comes to us. We thank you for the promises that you've made that yield benefits in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that you will open our hearts and minds this morning as we come to your word. May we be a people receptive to the message that you've given to us in this passage today. For it's in Christ and we pray. Amen. So let me ask you, what was the best day of your life? If you think about it there, some of you might be able to look back in the past and say, this particular day was the best day of my life. Uh, maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe it was when you met your future husband or wife. Those sorts of events are often what give us the sense that this is the best day of our life. Maybe you're sitting here and you're not sure that you've had it yet. Maybe the best day of your life is still yet future. And maybe you can't look back in the past and see exactly which day of your life might have been the best day of your life. But if you ask that question of David... He would have known what was the best day of his life. He's had many great days, defeating Goliath, as we saw in 1 Samuel 15. But on this day, as we see in 2 Samuel 7, David is now going to receive a promise from God that changes everything, that shapes all of his life. Now, I know today some of us are having a good day. Normally, we come together and we say, oh, it's a good day, isn't it? And we're talking about the weather, which is the most insignificant part of your day is what the weather is. What matters is what's really going on in your life. So I know in a group this large, there's many of you that are having a pretty good day. But I'm also certain that many of you here today are having a bad day or you're in a bad time in life. Some of you here might be hurting. You might be wondering, how is it that I can get through the mess that is my life now? I feel like my life is breaking apart. The hope that I had is now in question. So what is the word that God gives us today for somebody in that situation? And in this passage we see today, there's a word for all of us. For those of you who are on the high moments of your life, you can look with David and say with great gratitude, thank you, God, for being my source. Thank you, God, for being the person, the promise that has given me all that I need in life. But if you're having a bad time in life, a difficult season of life, as people say. There's also a word here also, because there's a word that comes from God that is, I am still your hope. I am still your promise. And it is in God that we have a hope for our future. And so no matter what day we're having, whether it's good, bad, or somewhere in between, we know that God is the source of all the good that comes to us and the hope that we all need in the future. Now, as we come to this passage, as Lawrence mentioned, it's Perhaps the most significant passage in the Old Testament, Lars said, I think it's the most significant passage. 
Let's just go ahead and up the ante one more step. In this passage, 2 Samuel 7, this passage becomes the hinge that looks back in history and forward in time. It looks back in history to a time, the beginning, when God made his first promises to Adam and Eve in the garden. It looks forward at a time to when Christ would ultimately fulfill all the promises that God makes to David in this passage. And when we look at this passage, chapter 7, we see a number of things. So again, uh, as we had read, now when king, the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. That's verse 1. Notice two things here. David is having a good day. He's, first of all, living in his house. He has now defeated the Philistines. He's now conquered the land. He's now become the leader of uh, the Israelites, the king of the Israelites. He was anointed king back in uh, 1 Samuel 15. He was made king in 2 Samuel just a few chapters ago, as we see. He's now enjoying the fruits of that. And as we saw last time, the uh, Phoenicians were able to help David build a great palace in Jerusalem. David conquered Jerusalem against the Jebusites. And so he's got a great house to live in. And he's living in his house. And it says the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. So David could look all around him and say, all of those peoples that had been challenging me, they're now all suppressed. We now have peace in the land. We Israelites, these 12 tribes that were promised by God to Moses in the wilderness have now entered the land and now finally have conquered it. It is our land. We're home again. We're at rest. The problem comes when you read chapter 8, verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took, and it goes on, the hand of the Philistines and he defeated Moab. So the battles seem here now to continue. And I think what we see here is, this is what the scholars think, is this chapter 7 is chronologically out of place. That in fact, the events of chapter 7, the covenant that God makes with David here, may have occurred later in these passages. So if it's chronologically out of place, why would the book be written that way? It's kind of like we see in the Gospels, where if you compare Matthew and Mark and Luke, the stories which are the same, they're not in the same chronological order. They're out of order. So the author is certainly not concerned about chronology. Instead, they're concerned about themes. And right now we see this great day in David's life being made plain where he's now going to be king and an eternal king. And it's placed before events that are quite troubling. And if you see this now as a high moment in David's life, in coming weeks we're going to see David descend further into sin, problems surround him, and he's going to die quite miserable in many ways. And so this is going to be his high moment in life, but this story continues in light of what we learn here about David's great day, being made king and being promised a kingdom by God. And so that's going to follow. But notice here, we continue in verse 2. The king, David, said to Nathan the prophet, we're first introduced to Nathan here, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, David is enjoying, and you can kind of see him on the veranda of his house, this great palace overlooking Jerusalem. And he's now got a great house. And in a good heart, he realizes it's now time to build a great house for the Ark of the Covenant, for God himself. He's talking about building a temple. 
And so David now has a plan. And he tells us to Nathan the prophet that we're going to see much more in coming weeks. But he gives Nathan this, uh, this promise that I think we should build a temple to God. Nathan, who was a great encourager, looks at David and says, that sounds like a wonderful idea. And so Nathan encourages David to do this. And they must have had a good evening as they wrap things up. And Nathan goes on to bed. David goes to bed thinking about what we're going to do to build this great temple in the future. And then God comes to Nathan that evening. So let's continue on as we read verse 4. And God has a different plan. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And God said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So right there you see already God says, you think you're going to build me a house? You can hear it kind of this way. You're not building me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And so this is a message that God gives to Nathan that Nathan will now pass on to David. I'm not going to build, you're not going to build a house for me, but God will build a house for David. And so the good plans that David and Nathan had, this idea of building a house, God immediately says, no, you're not going to do that. Now, David was in a right heart. He was wanting to do the right thing. He was grateful to what God has done for him and for the Israelites and giving them this land. He was wanting to do the right thing. And many times in our own lives, we feel like God is calling us to do something bold, something great, something to step out in life. Maybe there's a time in your life when you were either at a youth camp sitting around a campfire or a moment in your life when you felt God wanting you to do something bold and something great and stepping out and doing that, and you look back and you realize it just didn't come to fruition. And sometimes it's because that's God's plan. God doesn't always make all of us the greatest preacher in the land, the greatest church leader in the land, the greatest anything. Often he's happy to keep us humble and use us just who we are where we're at. And so we can't all be John MacArthur's or Chuck Swindoll's or whatever profession you might be. Instead, we find God just leaving us where he wants us. And so David wanted to do this great thing for God, and God said, no. Instead, I'm going to do a great thing for you. And this is where things begun to change. And so continuing in verse 7, In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar, built from your house of cedar? So God asked the question, you know, I never asked for anybody to build me a temple. I was content to have this Ark of the Covenant represent my presence and to travel with the people in a tent wherever the people went. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you might remember, it's about the same dimensions as our Lord's Supper table, about uh, three feet wide, four feet long, and two feet wide and two feet high. It had the angels, a cherubim that held their wings over the top of it, and it was carried on poles. And we saw last week from Bentley's sermon that you should carry it on poles and not an ox cart. Consequences follow when you disobey the Lord, as Uzzah saw. But the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. And God said... I was content to be with the people wherever they were at. He, God, wants to be where we're at. And although it was a good idea for, Jacob, uh, for David to want to build a house for God, God says, I'd rather be with my people. That's what matters most. And so God said, I never asked for you to build me a house. Now, verse 8. Now, therefore, 
Thus he shall say to my servant David. Now, if you notice already, he's called David the servant David several times. The uh, word for servant is the same word in Hebrew that's used for slave. Evet. So David is a servant, one who serves God. And this you might think to be quite a title of recognition. It's one thing to be king. It's another to be recognized as a servant of God. And I think David at this moment in his life was happy to be called the servant of God. That's who I am. That's what I'm doing. And so the word comes and, and, and Nathan is given word, go to David and tell him this. And so now we begin to break into this covenant that God is going to make with David. What matters now is not the temple that will be built, although that's going to be significant, and it plays greatly into this theme of the Davidic covenant. What matters most now is the kingdom that God is going to build through David and his seed. So let's take a look in verse 8 with this message. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell with their own place and be disturbed no more. Already, we see God beginning to flesh out the promises that he's making to David. You will have a great name. My people will have a place. They will have a land. They will have a place to be, a place where they are not disturbed. So there'll be peace in the land. And so now God's coming to David with these great promises. These aren't small matters. For a people that has spent their entire existence in history in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, in the desert for 40 years, wandering, now entering the land, a land that was supposed to be theirs and finding it full of enemies and Canaanites and others that they had to rid the land of, now it's theirs. Now there's a place. Now there's a people. Now there's a peace. And it's in this place and time now that God says, I'm doing something great in your life and the life of your people in this kingdom. And so we see these elements of the Davidic kingdom being uh, itemized here. Uh, it continues on in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, the promises become intricate here, because at this point, we see a number of things happening at the same time. The seed the offspring that will receive the promise, the benefits of this covenant, this promise that God is making, will first be Solomon, and then Solomon's descendants, and will continue on down through their descendants in history. And so it's not only to David, but it's to his descendants also. And it has this play on words, we should note. When it speaks of David building a house for God, the word house there is a temple. When it speaks of God building a house for David, the word house there of David is a dynasty. He's leaving a people, a kingdom. It's the house of David. Just like in England, we have the house of Windsor. The legal right to be the monarch descends down. And the legal right belongs to one person only. It's not fought over. It belongs to this person. So also, God says, now with David, the house of David 
will have this legal right to be king descend down through their people. And it will continue on through history. And if you know the New Testament as you do, you know that it shows its ultimate fulfillment in what Jesus is and who he was and what he accomplishes for us there. And so we see the promises being made. Uh, Again, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God's going to establish a throne, a kingdom that is forever, an eternal kingdom, one that doesn't end. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I suppose one day the house of Windsor will fall and maybe there'll be a new house that arises. Maybe there won't be. But history shows that kingdoms just don't last forever. But this one will. That's a promise made that this kingdom of David's will, the house of David, last forever. Again, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Now, here we see the promise being made that to Israel, to David, you'll be a king. Over his people, God's people, Israel, and it will be eternal and everlasting. However, God says, if you disobey, the people will be disciplined. Now, you might immediately think back to the covenant that God made with Moses that's reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, throughout Deuteronomy. But in chapter 28, the words come from God and say, if you obey my covenant, blessings will come. If you disobey my covenant then curses will come, punishment will come. And so right now, God has said that as long as my people obey, things will go great. But if you disobey, then you'll be disciplined by the rod of nations. So keep that in mind. But verse 15 says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established Forever, in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So we see these elements. We have a, a great name being promised. You will have a great name in verse 9. You will have a place. There's a land inheritance. You will have rest. You will have peace in the land. There will be a house of David, a dynasty that lasts forever. You will have descendants and offspring. There will be a temple that God will have built eventually by Solomon. There will be a great throne upon which you will rule your kingdom, and there will be sonship in verse 14, and the kingdom again in verse 13 and 16. So all of these, as I've given you in your notes, all of these promises come to David as a means to say, this is the Davidic kingdom. This is a promise that God makes to David. Now again, if you were David, you've got to figure, what better day can you ever have in your life than a day when God says, not only will you be a king, but I will make your descendants a ruler's forever, a kingdom forever. And so that's a Davidic covenant. Now, we think about a covenant. What is a covenant exactly anyway? First of all, God makes this covenant with David, and and it has several elements to it. You can think of of David's uh, greatness in this way. He's recognized as a great leader. First of all, politically, he was great. Right? David was the one who united the 12 tribes. And so now the 12 tribes are together, all one kingdom. Under Saul, it was fractured, it was divided, there was problems. But now under David, we have one kingdom. He established a land, and the land began to spread during his rule. 
He established a capital in Jerusalem. So politically it's significant because now Jerusalem shows up for the first time in a significant way. Jerusalem itself was also just kind of on the border between Judah in the south and the northern tribes. And so it kind of divided the line, sort of the Mason-Dixie line of the ancient world, where the, the, the capital of Jerusalem could reach north and also south. And so politically, David was significant. He was also significant in Israel's history, let's say liturgically. David was the one who invented the worship songs. The Psalms are songs that David and many others wrote after him that are songs of praise to God. And so when David begins to, in his heart, sense that some words need to be said to God, he writes these psalms. And we have, in recent weeks, read a number of these psalms that correlate with the events in David's life. And there's more to come on that, I'm sure. But these psalms that we read are reflections by David on the greatness of what God has done, on the promises God has made and fulfilled in David, in his people, Israel, in their land. There's also psalms which look to God for you know, answers in times of distress. Lament psalms are called. Psalms when we're going through difficult times of life. But liturgically now, we see this as part of it. Before this moment, the tabernacle was silent except for perhaps the cries of the animals being slaughtered so the People remembered what their sin cost. There wasn't singing. There was silence. But now, with David, we see liturgically this moment of worship attends to this day of rest. The day of rest has come. And so politically and liturgically, David is significant. Eschatologically, looking to the future, it's even more significant, as we'll see. So there's a number of covenants. And I want to say just a few words about Covenants. It's not a word that we use very often, frankly, in, in common language. It shows up in contracts. You have covenants of fair dealing. You have covenant neighborhoods. It's the only place we ever see this word, basically. A covenant where your, your neighbor can't paint his house purple or pink, and, and you have to keep your lawn mowed, these sort of things. And so these covenants are, are out there in that sense, but we never speak of a covenant. The only other place where we really think in terms of a covenant might be the marriage covenant, a moment when a husband and a wife who've made a promise one to another now enter into a covenant of marriage and say, I will be yours forever and you'll be mine forever. Before my wife and I got married, you know, I could, uh, we were dating and, and I didn't have to answer to her where I might be going on an evening. I could go do something on a night. I might tell her I might not. But after we're married, there's a difference in our relationship now. Rick can't just go out for three days and show back up three days later without telling her where I've been. You see, there's, there's duties that you owe, expectations that you have, rules that you follow, that you don't breach in a covenant, a covenant of love. And that's what these covenants are. They're promises that God has made to his people. Now, there's two kinds of covenants. And you know what they are? Conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. So there's first, let's talk about some of these covenants. I've given a, a list of them to you in your notes. And just so you can have them because we can't spend that much time on them. There's first the covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
It's, it's called the covenant, the Edenic covenant or the Adamic covenant. And sometimes there's a distinction made. But basically it's God coming and creating this one couple. And Eden is conceived of as really a place where God and man now dwell together. And that is an image of a temple. A picture where divine space and human space overlap and come together. And so Eden is a picture of that. Now we know the problem of Eden when sin interjects itself and Adam and Eve are now cast from the garden, they lose that presence of God. And so the Edenic covenant with Adam ends tragically with sin. And so now humanity is separated from God, no longer has God's full and immediate presence with them. And so Genesis 1 and 2, the glories of that, are marred by the sin of Genesis 3, the fall. And then time passes and we see humanity fall deeper into sin until we come to Babel, where now the pagans of the world think that they can build a tower, a ziggurat is basically what we're talking about from the Babylonian era, a ziggurat that reaches to a place where God, their idea is that they can bring God down and manipulate and control God. And God comes down and laughs at them and says, you're not going to control me. And so there's the flood. The story of Noah is a story about God now creating one holy family after the, the flood. And so we go from a couple in Adam and Eve to a holy family in Noah. And so Noah becomes something of a new Adam, the new progenitor of the future human race. Now we come down through history after that, and there's more problems, more sin in the land still, until God shows up and meets Abra, Abram. He becomes Abraham, so let's call him Abraham. When God meets Abraham. And now in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. So can everybody do this? Okay, let's just flip up, you just loosen up your fingers. Flip over to Genesis 12. We're going to go quickly through this. If you can't keep up, then uh, keep the notes and follow along later. But there's a promise that God makes in Genesis 12 to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go up from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Already, right there in verse 2, three things are said. That one, I'll make you a great nation that I will make you a great name, and that you will be a blessing. Those three elements of this promise that God makes to Abram will become a covenant in chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 22. In chapter 15, it will elaborate on the idea of you being a great nation. And that's where we'll see that. Uh, then the make a great name will show up in chapter 17, and then a great blessing will show up in chapter 22. So this is a covenant. All the families of the earth will be blessed through the covenant made with Abraham. You see that at the end of verse 3? All the families of the earth will be blessed through this covenant that God makes with Abraham. So if you've ever wondered how the Bible works, it's through the covenants that God has made. You can't understand how the Bible works except you follow the covenants, the promises God has made and how he's fulfilled them. Otherwise, the stories of the Bible become nothing more than a collection of VeggieTales sort of uh, images in our minds that have no coherence. They're just isolated events without a plot that goes somewhere. The covenants are the plot that tie everything together. So Genesis 12. Now flip over to Genesis 15 real quick. In Genesis 15, 
Uh, Abram has now had uh, a battle protecting Lot. Uh, Melchizedek, the priest, comes to Abram in, in chapter uh, 14, the end of the chapter. And now God makes a covenant with Abraham in, in chapter 15. And in verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Now the problem here uh, is that uh, Abram needs a son. And, and uh, Abraham now has, uh, 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 they're old, a son needs to come. And so God makes a promise in verse 5, And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So now God says that I will make you a great nation. You can look up to the sky, and you count the stars. That is how many children you will have. And then Abraham, in verse 8, But how, O Lord, shall I know that I'm going to possess it? How can I know that you'll really do this for me? That's a question Abraham asks. And so God has an answer. And as it reads on through, chapter, through verse 9 and following, God says, go get some animals. Go get a goat, a ram, and, and some birds, and lay them down. Cut the big animals in half and separate the birds. And God walks through there. In fact, the word for covenant is, is spoken of as to cut a covenant. And so God makes this promise to Abraham that you will be a great nation in this way. And so there's a covenant made, a promise made. Uh, as we come down to verse 18, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And so God promises a great people and a great land in chapter 15. In chapter 17, we continue on. And now Abraham thinking, we've got to have a child to have this covenant fulfilled. Sarah's old, can't have a child. Sarah has an idea. Take my handmaiden, Hagar. You go in with her, produce a child that way. She will then produce the heir. And so that's how we see Abraham going in uh, and uh, an heir being produced this way. Uh, in chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and, shall be, and you shall be the father of this multitude of nations. And he ex extends his name. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham because you'll be fruitful. You'll build nations. And so the Abrahamic covenant is expanded here again to include this idea developed that you will be the, a father of a great nation. You will have a great name. And that parallels the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant fulfills or further develops this idea that God made to Abraham in chapter 17 that you will be a great people, have a great name. And to have a great name means to be a king, to be a ruler, to be in charge. That's how you got a great name. So the promise is made here. As we turn over to chapter 22, we come to this troubling circumstance in chapter 22 where God tells Abraham to take your only son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and there to sacrifice your son. So Abraham and Sarah have been given Isaac. This is your heir, God says. And through Isaac, all the promises will be fulfilled. And now God comes to Abraham and says to take this son, the only son I made this promise through, and take him and sacrifice him. And this is where Abraham, not understanding why, but only obeying, 
now takes his son Isaac. Now, in many of the depictions of Abraham and Isaac, you see Isaac as a, as a small boy. But in fact, as you read the story, you realize it says there that Isaac was the one that carried the wood up to the mountain. Isaac was undoubtedly stronger and younger than even Abraham was. He was the one who could have overpowered Abraham. So don't picture Abraham wrestling with a, a small child at this moment. Picture Isaac instead willingly participating in the covenant promises, the call that God has made, willingly submitting himself to God's will and Abraham here. But at the moment before anything happens, God says, stop. Instead, he supplies a ram. Now up the hill, walking up the hill, Isaac said, what are we sacrificing here? Isaac knew. But Abraham said, God will supply a lamb. God will supply a lamb. But God doesn't supply a lamb. He supplies a ram. And that's what's sacrificed there on Mount Moriah. So now the covenant endures through Isaac. But on this Mount Moriah, a sacrifice was made. And on this Mount Moriah was Isaac, who in obedience submitted himself to God's will. And forever it would be remembered as that place where Abraham and Isaac together did what God required. Did, did what they asked. Um, Kierkegaard, in writing about this passage in his book, Fear and Trembling, talks about uh, the, uh, the, the passion for the impossible. At this moment, Abraham, not knowing how, did what God called to, even though it looked as though it was creating an impossible circumstance. And, and they, were, they were passionate in doing what God called, even though it looked impossible. And so now we have the Abrahamic covenant laid out in this way. When we come to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant creates this kingdom, creates this great idea that there will be a kingdom. And so with Abraham, the covenant made there, we have the holy clan. God is making his promises of salvation to this entire clan. Later with the Mosaic covenant, when God comes to Moses and takes the Israelites out of Egypt, he makes a covenant on Mount Sinai, a conditional covenant, but there he's creating one holy nation. So now the promises of salvation are expanding from the, the couple in Eden to the family in Noah to the clan in Abraham and to now the nation in Israel. And when you come to 2 Samuel 7, you see it now a kingdom being promised. It's now extending to this kingdom. Then there's a new covenant that Jeremiah talks about. In Jeremiah 31, a new covenant is spoken of there. Now, through this, God is working, developing these plans. So let's take a quick look at verses 18 and following uh, as uh, uh, David now reflects on the promises that God has made. As we look at verses 18 and following, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? What more can I say? And then he goes on speaking quite extensively as we see. He's got a lot more to say. So he continues on. For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about this greatness.
to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your holy people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation in its gods. David asks, reflects on the greatness of what God has done. You brought your people out of Egypt through the desert into the promised land and you drove out the people of this land so that we could possess it. You have fulfilled your promises and all they can do is reflect on the greatness of what God has done. And you sense the poetic nature of this chapter. As you read 2 Samuel 7 against its context, both before and after, you see this chapter reads very different from the rest of Samuel. It's very poetic. It's beautifully written. It's full of hope. It's full of promise. It's full of praise and prayers. It glories in what God has done, the promises God has made, promises that David inherits the benefits of and that we do too. And so he continues on. Uh, In verse uh, 26, And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now, the promise is made. The kingdom will endure through David, through Solomon, and through their descendants. Now, do this again and go over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. The first book of the New Testament starts off in ways that most people find strange. It starts off with a genealogy. And if you ever thought there was a a less engaging way to start your life story, it's by detailing uh, generations upon generations of ancestors. But that's what Matthew does for a reason. Now look at verse 1, Matthew 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So now this is where Jesus came from. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Already Matthew is saying that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the one that fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, the promises. He is the one that answers the question about the Davidic kingdom. He is the son of David. And it goes down through the names. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Judah is important because that goes back to Genesis 49 verse 10. We can't go there now, but look at that, where the promise is made from Jacob to Judah that from you the scepter shall not depart until basically the Messiah comes. And so Genesis 49.10 is that promise. It goes on down, and the genealogy mentions Rahab, who we met uh, in the book of Joshua, Ruth, the Moabite. This is not a a favored people, but Ruth becomes the grandmother uh, to David. And then David and Solomon. And then it goes after Solomon through those verses. If you read it, these are the kings of Israel. But it comes down in verse 11 to Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And this is an interesting point because it's at this point in history when God has now taken the Israelites. They've now had a descent of their kings. The legal right to reign remained with them, but because of sin and corruption, God took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity by the Assyrians. And then eventually under Jeconiah, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken by the Babylonians. Now, again, in uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 22, we have the story of Jeconiah. And this is a critically important point. Jeconiah, Coniah, it's the same guy, Jehoiakim, the same guy. In Jeremiah chapter 22, it elaborates there on a curse. Because of the sin of Jeconiah, God curses it. And these are the words. As I live, declares the Lord, though Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand that represents you're the king, although you were that, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those to whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you the kingdom of Israel. This is God saying to Jeconiah that I'm now going to send the Israelites, the, the king of Judah, into captivity because of your sin. The promise God made of a king is now in danger because of this. And in, in verse 27, but to the land to which they will uh, long to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, Jeconiah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. You see what God did there? He makes this curse on Jeconiah and says that you will never and your descendants will never again sit on the throne of David. So how is that to be reconciled with the promise that God made to David that you will have an eternal kingdom? And the answer is when you go to Matthew again, you see there the legal right to be king descended through this same line. And as you trace this genealogy down through Matthew 1, it comes eventually into verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So you see, this is the answer. Although Luke chapter 3 gives the genealogy of Mary, and it traces it back through David's son, Nathan, different from the prophet, but through Nathan to David. So Jesus, through Mary, is a physical descendant of David. But through Joseph, the legal right comes. The legal right having been cut off to those who are natural born of Jeconiah and his descendants. But Jesus was not naturally born of Joseph. And you see now, the virgin birth itself solves this conundrum. Because the legal right to rule descends down through Joseph, now to Jesus. In fact, as you see the earlier list of, of, of people there, those were the kings of Israel. It looks as though... Had there been a king in Israel at this time, that Joseph would have been the king of the Israelites. But this legal right now comes to Jesus. He is now the one who is king. So he's a descendant of David through Mary, but he's now the legal right belongs to him through Joseph. And that's the only way the eternal kingdom could be solved. That now 
Jesus sits on the throne of David as the eternal king and the eternal covenant. And these covenants are made in such a way to make sure we see the eternal nature of them. When we come to uh, the rest of the, the New Testament, we see the question being asked here, who is the king? And what God is doing, even as we go to Revelation, the last passages here, uh, Revelation uh, chapter uh, 22, verse 14, the end of the whole story. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is being promised here is an eternal kingdom, a kingdom in which we are all invited. When we sit down to the Lord's table, it is a picture of the new covenant, as Luke 22 describes, participating in that new covenant, the new covenant, which is the covenant which extends the blessings that God made to Abraham to all peoples. We are all invited to participate in this kingdom, in what God has made. And so we can come to this and say, Lord, yes, I want to be a part of your kingdom. If we just come to Christ, accept him into our lives, we can now enjoy the benefits of what he's done. And so the entire New Testament is built on this idea that Jesus is the ultimate son of David, the king that carries the kingdom forward eternally. The promise of revelation is that God creates this new heavens and new earth in which all of those who are God's, those who are his people, will enjoy the benefits. And so as we think about this covenant that God makes with David, it does last. And even though in David's life he falls, even though in David's life there will be sin, there will be troubling days, he will go through a downward spiral through this, but nevertheless, the promise remains. The promise remains that it will happen, and it's fulfilled in Christ. Let's stand as we dismiss. Our Father, as we look to your word and we see the promises that you made to David, and we see their ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself, that in Jesus, all that you have promised have come to fulfillment, that in Christ, the law now has been fulfilled, that in Jesus, we have a Savior who is a king, and in his blood, we have the benefits of this new covenant, this covenant that, that takes away our sin, that writes your word in our heart. And so, Lord, we only ask that you would help us in our hearts and minds and lives to live a life worthy of the promises that you've made to us, the benefits you've given to us. And may we be a people who look constantly to you as our Lord and Savior. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.